Hello and welcome to today's episode. I will be speaking to Dr. Rydia Lim on the diagnosis and treatment of glaucoma. Dr. Lim, tell us about yourself. Hi, David. Thank you for the invitation to come and speak with you today. Well, I'm an ophthalmologist and I'm a glaucoma specialist and I practice glaucoma and ophthalmology in Sydney. I'm in private practice in Parramatta and I'm head of the glaucoma unit at Sydney Eye Hospital. This is the clinical takeaway from HealthEd, interviewing leading medical experts on important topics that can positively impact the way you practice. Here's your host and medical educator, Dr. David Lim. Rydia, we're looking at glaucoma, uh, what it is, the traditional treatments, and I understand you want to talk to us about novel treatments. So let's start at the very basic level. What okay. is glaucoma? Well, glaucoma is a leading cause of irreversible blindness in the world, you know, and what it is, is it's a chronic progressive optic neuropathy, which is incurable. And glaucoma is not one disease. It's actually many, many different diseases. Maybe I would say to patients about at least 50 different types of glaucoma, but they all lead to one thing, which is a characteristic type of uh, nerve damage and retinal nerve fiber layer loss. And you might know it as cupping of the optic disc and then leading to peripheral field loss. So it's a multifactorial disease. And while it's multifactorial, lowering the intraocular pressure is the only thing that we can do for glaucoma, you know, because the other uh, risk factors such as aging or your family, it's not something that you can change. Now, we understand it's a neuropathy. We do see the cupping of the discs. We understand that the treatment is the lowering of intraocular pressure, but can you join the dots about how the pressure rose in the first place? Why is it important to reduce the pressure? And you did mention there are 50 different types. If you could just name a top few so we can understand what we're dealing with. Okay. So why does, I mean, okay, there are two parts to glaucoma. There's the fact that the pressure is a risk factor and the pressure rises because the outflow the, you can think of the eye as being like a, a sink, you know, there's a tap and a drain. The drain, the tap remains, the aqueous production remains fairly steady throughout life, but outflow changes throughout life. So diseases that affect the outflow cause the pressure to rise. So broadly, when we think about glaucoma, there's open angle glaucoma, and angle closure glaucoma. They're the two main types of glaucoma. So in open angle glaucoma, well, what used to be called sort of primary open angle glaucoma, you can't actually see that there's a problem with the outflow. However, microscopically, the, the, the drainage is not normal. In angle closure glaucoma, the angle, the iridocorneal angle is narrowed and it can be touching, it can be appositional or it can close completely. And that causes the narrow angle type of glaucoma. And many other diseases cause glaucoma, such as um, trauma or uh, every disease in the eye can lead to glaucoma by damaging the outflow, inflammation, trauma, you know, steroid use, retinal diseases, etc. Now that's fairly clear. That's good. Now, how's it diagnosed, Rydia? 
mainly glaucoma is diagnosed by optometrists in the community looking for glaucoma. The vast majority of glaucoma is a silent disease. Mm -hmm. um, if you waited for symptoms in, say, open angle glaucoma, which is the, the most common type of glaucoma, you would be finding disease in a very late state. So over the years, community optometrists have become really good at case finding. Mm -hmm. Their skills in looking for disease has in improved over the decades. So a lot of glaucoma starts by the optometrist looking at the patient and asking the question, could this be glaucoma based on the optic nerve appearance or the visual field findings or intraocular pressure rise? And then they're referred to us for confirmation. I mean, I guess GPs could also be case finders for glaucoma. They should really be looking for patients with, a, say, a family history or older patients with um, a symptom such as, you know, eye ache or headache or rainbow colours around lights, those sorts of symptoms. But uh, once referred to us, we diagnose glaucoma by looking at the optic nerve. The, um, the glaucoma is a progressive disease of the optic nerve. So uh, we look for um, clinical signs, but optic disc nerve structure and function what, what we look at. Um, but we, yeah, we look at the big picture. So really, what sort of tests would an ophthalmologist do to confirm the diagnosis of glaucoma? Okay, firstly, it's a clinical diagnosis, but tests such as OCT and visual field help us diagnose glaucoma. Uh, OCT is optical coherence tomography. It's a um, looking at the structure of the retinal nerve fiber layer and op of the optic disc using light. And um, what we see there is that uh, in glaucoma, we, we lose retinal nerve fiber layers in a characteristic pattern, particularly in the inferior retinal nerve fiber layer first. But um, to lose retinal nerve fiber layer with age is normal aging, but to lose in sections is characteristic of glaucoma and other eye diseases. So that's the structural test that we do for glaucoma. For the function, visual field testing is what we do. It's called standard automated perimetry or Humphrey field testing is the most common, common one. And it looks at the central, usually about the 24 degrees because glaucoma is a disease that affects visual function in mm -hmm. the mid periphery, not the far or central, central uh, field is usually preserved until later in the disease, which is why it's, if you wait for someone to have visual acuity problems, it's very, very late in the disease. What is the role of tonometry and what sorts of pressures are you looking at? Yeah, so um, intraocular pressure is the normal intraocular pressure is set to be about 10 to 21, but it's not a normal distribution. And about 5% of the population will have a pressure that's outside the normal range, but not have glaucoma. So that's known as ocular hypertension. So if you have ocular hypertension, you're at greater risk of developing glaucoma, but you, it doesn't equal glaucoma. For example, about 30% of my patients will have glaucoma based on the nerve, but will not have pressure outside the normal range, the so-called normal tension glaucoma. The higher the pressure, the more likely you will develop glaucoma, but they're, they're two different things. If you have pressure that's outside the normal range, 
your chance of developing glaucoma in the next five years is about 10%. But we know from major studies that you need to understand the context that that intraocular pressure is in, in terms of the corneal thickness. So we know we, that's another measurement that we take. We, if you have a thick cornea, you're more likely to have a pressure that's outside the normal range. And that's purely based on measurement. All the machines that take pressure measurements will measure higher in a thicker cornea than, than is the real pressure. So 10 to 21, mean being about 16. But as I said, it's only a, a number. Now, if outside, say, 28 to 30, we would measure, uh, we would usually treat the intraocular pressure regardless of whether they have glaucoma or not, because there are some risks to developing other diseases. So we're really looking at the two things, aren't we? You, you, you sort of mentioned uh, the neuropathy and now the actual pressure issues. Um, shall we start off by looking at how you treat the intraocular pressures uh, before we move on to talking about the neuropathy? Yep, sure. So uh, we lower the intraocular pressure in many different ways. You'd be familiar with um, eye drops. You know, really before the, uh, before say about 20, 20 to 25 years ago, there really weren't that many treatments available. There was uh, Timolol, the beta blockers, the uh, like oral carbonic anhydrase inhibitors, Dimox, some medications that have come and gone like propane and pilocarpine, which caused a lot of side effects. But the 90s and um, onwards, with that period, we got a lot of new medications, uh, the prostaglandin analogs. You probably would have heard of medications such as Zalatan, Travertan, Lumigan, and um, Saflutan. They really uh, were a bit of a game changer. But um, a lot of those medications, systemically safer, but can cause a lot of local side effects, including pigmentation around the eyes, eyelash growth, eye color change, and, you know, like a periorbitopathy. So they're not the, um, the, the dream drug, really, that we thought they would be from the beginning. Then came the alpha-2 agonists, which also lower the intraocular pressure well, but can cause um, a lot of allergy and dry eye. Topical carbonic anhydrase inhibitors such as Trusopt and Azopt are another class. And um, there are some other, another class called the ROC inhibitors, which are available overseas, but um, we, we have access, limited access to them in Australia. We can get them through the special access scheme. So those medications are the main ones that are available, but I think it's really important for GPs to know that there are many, many combinations of glaucoma treatments. And I guess the one to really think about is the beta blockers, because beta blockers cause systemic side effects, such as, um, you know, worsening asthma, you know, the cardiovascular side effects of beta blockade. And um, there are many combinations such as, Zalacom, Duotrav, Ganfort, Combigan, Cosopt, and all of those, although you don't think of eye drops as having significant side effects, certainly I've seen those cause many side effects and um, GPs should be aware of the beta blockers in glaucoma treatments. So that's one group. And then there's uh, the laser treatments to lower intraocular pressure. 
Before we get there, Lydia, very often when patients come back to us from ophthalmologists and are prescribed eye drops, not every GP knows what the drops do. And certainly not all of us know what are the side effects or adverse reactions we ought to look for. And so it becomes very easy for GPs just to keep writing repeat prescriptions without asking or looking for problems. So what should we be looking for and what should trigger a medication review? Thanks for that question, David. I, I think that because as a specialist, we become so siloed into what we do. I, I do take for granted that GPs do understand what the drops do. But I think firstly, just understanding that point of view, I will definitely try to include more education in my letters about back to the patient, uh, the patient's GP. The prostaglandin analogues, they reduce the intraocular pressure by increasing uveoscleral outflow. So it's an outflow medication. Their main side effects are increasing blepharitis. So you might see irritation, redness around the eyes, people complaining about lash growth. They don't cause many systemic side effects. But having said that, if they do, they cause flu-like symptoms. So if your patient's uh, a well patient, suddenly they have symptoms of arthralgias and uh, joint pains and things like that, that flu-like symptoms that won't go away, that could be from the prostaglandins. So generally a well-tolerated medication with more local than systemic side effects. The alpha-2 agonists, they cause a lot of dry eye, but in the extremes of age where the blood-brain barrier is a little bit leaky, that's in children and elderly, mm -hmm. people can get hypersomnolence. They get very tired. You, usually this happens um, after about 20 minutes after taking the drop, you know. So if patients say to you, I'm taking this medication and I feel very sleepy, you know, half an hour or so after I take it, I have to go go and have a lie down. Well, that could be due to the alpha-2 agonists. That's why we don't use it in infants and children. So another side effect from the alpha-2 agonist is uh, allergy. So about 30% of these patients will become allergic to it in the long term. They're not allergic to it immediately. They become allergic to it. And it causes a very characteristic red eye. So if patients on alpha-GAN, uh, alpha-GAN-P, combi-GAN, Simbrinza, and iopidine suddenly develop or slowly develop a red eye that won't go away, think this is an allergy rather than thinking that this is conjunctivitis. So I guess my message about that is if a glaucoma patient develops a red eye, could you think of allergy and, and think about particularly the alpha-2 agonists mm -hmm. rather than conjunctivitis? And you'll know that because it won't go away. It gets progressively worse. And if you look at the eye, it's a follicular conjunctivitis. So that's the alpha-2 agonists. Carbonic anhydrase inhibitors, Trusopt, Azopt, and um, Dimox. Trusopt and Azopt, generally well-tolerated, not as effective at lowering the intraocular pressures as the other medications, used as adjunctive therapy. They cause a bitter taste in the mouth. So the patient takes the drop and about half an hour later, they get an altered taste. It's actually a central nervous system side effect called dysgeusia, and it alters their perception of taste. 
briefly. So patients say they've got a bitter taste. Their Coke tastes different. I, I usually say don't drink the Coke. <laughs> but in any case, that, that bitter taste is uh, something that, that can happen with that. Also, it can also cause allergy, but not to the same degree as the alpha-2 agonists. And it can cause a increasing blepharoconjunctivitis. So more redness and dryness in the lower lid with um, a little bit of redness on the eye. So they're, they're the main classes of glaucoma drugs. Fantastic. Now now I'm beginning to be fairly clear of what I need to look for. Uh, you were going to mention the laser treatments. Oh, yes. So SLT is uh, the laser that we use to lower the intraocular pressure. That's selective laser trabecularplasty. So since the 70s, we've been lasering, actually earlier, ever since laser was invented, we've been lasering the trabecular meshwork. First, it was the Ruby laser, the Xenon laser, then Argon laser. From the 70s, Argon laser was used, ALT was used for a very long time until the late 90s. And it was always used as adjunctive therapy. So if all the drops failed, we'd use ALT before surgery. However, it caused, in. I think if you were heavy-handed, it could cause its own problems by damaging the trabecular outflow further leading to worse glaucoma. And so in the late 90s, SLT was invented and it's selective. So it just selectively kills off melanin-containing cells in the trabecular meshwork. And then it incites a, a um, remodeling process, just a bit like lasering skin for um, pigment. And then your body does the, the rest of the work by inciting a sort of an inflammatory remodeling process. And uh, SLT is um, probably the, the safest laser we do in the eye. It is a laser. So, of course, fine print is that it can cause problems, but it's pretty rare to cause problems with SLT. And so major studies have shown now that um, SLT can be offered as initial therapy for the right patient. So when you start patients on treatment, SLT can be used as initial treatment or medications. I'd say most patients still choose medications because they don't like the idea of laser or the idea of something invasive being done. But studies show that um, it's a very safe treatment. It doesn't always work, but drops don't work 100% of the time either. Both drops and SLT work better when the pressure is higher. Uh, numerically, if you have normal tension glaucoma, all of the treatments work a little less well. So SLT is a, it probably works about 80% of the time or 85% of the time. And it's used at any treatment escalation, initial treatment or escalation to a second treatment. Because if you have a patient on one treatment, many people have a reasonable quality of life and they can maintain uh, medication adherence. But as soon as you add a, uh, a twice a day therapy, compliance drops off, adherence drops off, quality of life changes. And in, you know, if you look at medications that are actually taken by patients, the, the compliance and adherence rates in glaucoma patients is pretty poor uh, <laughs> when it gets to more than one drop therapy. 
Really, uh, just going back to the possibility of all the adverse reactions and allergies of all the drops we use, it almost seems as if a GP should sooner rather than later have a discussion with the patient about the long-term issues with the drops. And again, probably highlighting the benefits of SLT, especially if their pressures are high, rather than just not address it because we don't know what to talk about. It almost looks as if we may have a role in directing them towards SLT earlier. Uh, I think that it's certainly something that GPs should know that it's being offered as primary therapy and that it's a safe treatment. And patients might wish to discuss this with their GP because, you know, you have this long-term relationship with with your patients. More GPs knowing about that would be really great. And the other thing is you you have already a long-term relationship with a patient. And I find that one of the reasons patients don't take up SLT probably as much as they should is that it's a lot to absorb with your first consultation with your ophthalmologist. Yes, you have glaucoma. Yes, you need treatment. Would you like an invasive treatment? Mm -hmm. You know, that's a very hard um, pill to swallow to, mm. to begin with. However, I always offer it and say these are the pros and cons. And perhaps I will also say you could discuss it, this with your GP. Well, thank you for telling us more about it so we have more to discuss. What else do we have in terms of traditional treatment? Yeah, so we have, of course, glaucoma surgeries. You would have heard of trabeculectomy. You may not have heard of deep sclerectomy or non, yeah. But trabeculectomy is the gold standard glaucoma filtering procedure. And that's when we um, make a cut on the conjunctiva. We make a flap on the sclera and we create an, a surgical outflow drain. And um, it was invented, you know, in the 60s by um, the Cairns in Cambridge. And really not too much has changed in trabeculectomy technique, although we've refined it over the years and we've made it a bit more successful by using uh, anti-metabolites, mitomycin, 5-FU, you would have heard of those. But, you know, it's a really, it's a great operation when it works well, but it's a real operation with long-term site-threatening complications, such as bleb-related infections, blebitis, endophthalmitis, and the possibility of losing vision due to the surgery. The other operation that we do a lot is tube surgery. But tube surgery, we're creating a drain into the eye using a quite a big device that goes underneath the muscles, the Maltino implant, the Bearvelt implant. It creates a bleb uh, underneath the eyelid and uh, under, underneath the, the rectus muscles. But it can cause problems with the cornea. It can cause... Um, diplopia. And we, we generally reserve that surgery for um, recalcitrant or glaucomas where traditional incisional surgeries won't work or will fail, like neovascular glaucoma or inflammatory glaucoma. So there's been really for many decades a massive hole in the treatment paradigm between medications, lasers, and incisional surgery. And in the last 10 years, some of that has been taken up by MIGS. You may have heard of MIGS, Minimally Invasive Glaucoma Surgeries. So MIGS are actually 
a group of surgeries that are characterized by being minimally invasive. So um, rather than making an inc incision on the conjunctiva, which is quite invasive and using antimetabolites and creating a drain, where minimally invasive glaucoma surgeries are um, trying to improve your outflow. So most will improve trabecular outflow, either by making cuts, which are quite popular overseas, or by using trabecular stents. In Australia, you may have heard of the eye stent, uh, the hydra stent. These are like eye stent is titanium, hydrus is nictinol, which is nickel titanium mix. And we, ins we inject that via a corneal in incision into the trabecular meshwork to create a outflow from the aqueous, the anterior chamber, to uh, reduce the trabecular resistance to improve aqueous outflow through the trabecular meshwork. So eye stents and hydra stents you may have come across. Are they effective? Yes, they are effective. Two major randomized controlled trials have shown their effectiveness and they're safe. They're effective and safe. The, like SLT, it's another very safe procedure. Commonly, it's combined with cataract surgery. Now, cataract surgery alone can reduce intraocular pressure. So cataract surgery alone in open angle glaucoma can reduce intraocular pressure. It, of course, decreases intraocular pressure much, much more in angle closure, where it's the primary and early surgical intervention. It, in, it reduces intraocular pressure in other diseases such as pseudoexfoliative glaucoma, where um, there's material on the lens that um, by doing cataract surgery, you reduce the intraocular pressure. But in open angle glaucoma, the randomized trials have compared cataract surgery alone to cataract surgery combined with a stent. And after a couple of years, intraocular pressure reduction persists with cataract surgery alone, but approximately doubles the percentage of people who are still controlled if you add a stent. So that's the average. Now, it doesn't work in everybody because of what I would classify as down, downstream resistance. Mm -hmm. So you can reduce the trabecular resistance, but then there may be further resistance in the outflow pathway. But it works extremely well in others. So the average tells us something, but what it'll do in your particular patient, you would have to do the surgery to work that out. How do GPs then know uh, with this kinds of combinations of more invasive treatment, which ones to speak to our patients about. We did say that SLT seems a nice, safe option to give at the beginning. It does sound like mix is similarly interesting. It's uh, safe and useful. It also sounds like if my patients had opacities in the cataracts, that in itself presents a golden opportunity for some form of treatment plus or minus a stent. And so it's a kind of a small paradigm or small little process is appearing in my mind. So is there a particular algorithm that helps? Yeah, I think that perhaps you could think of stents a bit like the surgical equivalent of an SLT in that if you see that that's been advised, you knowing that it is a well-tolerated and safe procedure in most patients uh, would be comforting to the patient. Mm -hmm. Now, incisional surgeries are 
a completely different group. And um, they're only offered really when the pros outweigh the cons of, of surgery. And there's another subgroup called the minimally invasive leb surgeries, which are also a, a way of trying to make or minimize or reduce the risks of incisional surgery. But I think with, with those, you may come across the Zen implant and the Preserflow implant. And those, I think, are in the early stages. And um, well, I'd say watch this space. Okay. Yeah. Mm. Lovely. You've been fantastic with your time. Very generous with it. Thanks, David. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcasts where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.